Good morning. Why don't I have a goatee? Well, last night uh, we were the Adams family. And in order to be Gomez, you've got to have a mustache. And so I don't really like mustaches. Sarah hates mustaches. So uh, I shaved it off this morning. But uh, it's coming back. I told Sarah this morning, I said, man, my face is going to be cold today. <laughs> but uh, that's why I look different today. Uh, open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's where we're going to begin this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> Let me say this too before we begin. I've had a couple of people ask me uh, for copies of these lessons if you want that, I'll be more than happy to get it to you. And it may be that I have enough people request that, that I'll just put some out in the foyer and you can pick them up each week as you come by. Uh, but we've got several more things to talk about. Uh, this week we're going to talk about the Antichrist. Next week we're, we're going to talk about uh, what can we expect on the Day of Judgment. And then after that, we're going to preach through Revelation. And uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. But if you want any of these lessons or all of them, I'd be more than happy to get you some type of an outline to help you with that. Uh, but basically, the Antichrist uh, is what we're talking about this morning. And at some point throughout history, people automatically wanted to connect the Antichrist with the figure that John talks about in his epistles. And I think it was natural for some people to want to do that uh, because John wrote the epistles of John. John talks about the Antichrist in 1 John chapters 2 and 4 and also in 2 John and verse 7. And you've got this beast in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11, the second beast in that chapter that possesses some of the same characteristics as the, the characteristics of the Antichrist in First uh, and Second John. And so I think since John wrote the epistles and he also wrote Revelation and these characters look kind of uh, similar on the surface, that people automatically wanted to connect uh, these two figures as being the person or one person that John is talking about. And then naturally, I think as things went along, people began to look at the things that were said about the Antichrist, the things that were said about uh, the second beast of Revelation 13 and verse 11, and then point to the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and say, well, uh, the man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. Christ as well. And so both Paul and John are talking about the Antichrist as they talk about these two figures. And you may wonder, well, what in the world does uh, the man of lawlessness have anything to do with the Antichrist or the reference to the beast in Revelation 13 and verse 11? Well, I am not going to try to explain who the Antichrist is this morning. That's a different lesson for a different day. And I'll be honest with you, I have no clue who the man of lawlessness is. Nobody does. There are a bunch of different interpretations. But what is the relationship between the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 and the beast that we find in Revelation 13 and verse 11. Well, let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and let's kind of look at some things that we can expect to see as we see the beast in Revelation 13. And we'll look at these things and then we'll flip over to Revelation and see what is said about, uh, about the beast. First of all, you have the association with false worship. 
In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4, it says this. It says that he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. And so there's some references to false worship that are associated with him. And we'll look more about that here in just a little bit with the beast. What about Satan's influence? If you look at 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 and 10, the Bible says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so it's not hard to see that Satan's influence is behind what the man of lawlessness is doing. And then in the third place, you have false, false signs and deception also mentioned in the same verses, verses 9 and 10, with all power and false signs and wonders, wicked deception uh, for those who are perishing because they chose not to obey the gospel, then all of these things are going to, to wreak havoc upon them. So what about the beast? Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 13 and let's see how there is a relationship between the second beast and the man of lawlessness. Look at the second thing on the screen. I think it's important for us to call attention to this first. What about Satan's influence? Going back to chapter 12 of Revelation and verse 17, it says, Then the dragon became furious. And the dragon there is Satan. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand and the sea. Now hold on to those two ideas. Where did he stand? He stood on the sand and he stood on the sea. This dragon did. Satan did. In Revelation 13, in the very next verse, verse 1, notice what it says. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. This first beast that's described in this chapter arises from the sea, one of the very places where Satan, the dragon, was standing. Go to verse 11 of chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. The second beast is rising up from the earth. Notice that the dragon was standing on the sea and on the sand. And so both of these beasts in chapter 13 are acting by the activity of Satan himself, the dragon himself. And so you've got Satan's influence associated with this. You've also got the false worship that's associated with it. Uh, if you look at verses 12 and 13, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs and even making fire come down from heaven uh, to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So you've got 
the association with false worship. You've also got false signs and deception. We've seen a little bit of that deception, but look at something else in verse 11. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. What is a lamb? Well, a lamb is a figure that's very innocent, very kind, very pure, we might say. Jesus was our lamb, sacrificed, slain from the foundation of the world. Pure, preciousness, innocence. That's what we get when we're associating someone with the lamb. This beast spoke like, or, or was, uh, this beast had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He seems innocent, but he's the exact opposite. He's very ferocious, very destructive. And so there's that deception idea. I'll go ahead and talk about this now because when we get into Revelation, we'll say a little bit more about this later on, many weeks later from now. But I just want to say this about the deception and the false signs. Uh, he performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven uh, to the earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. There have been archaeological discoveries found at different pagan temple sites, pagan altars, where there are hidden chambers under those altars. You know what they discovered? Well, we, we read about this in other places too, in other hist uh, historical writings, but they discovered these little chambers. And it was where these false priests, these priests of these false temples, would actually speak from under the altar, making people think that they were actually, the God that they were worshiping was actually speaking to them. It's a direct relation to the deception that was going on in this false religion of the empire, the Roman Empire at that time. And so there are, most people believe that the very first beast in Revelation 13 is the empire. And so I think it's natural for us to interpret the second beast in verse 11 as the religion of the empire. But not everybody does this. Because of the beast, the man of lawlessness, and the association with the Antichrist, people interpret the second beast in Revelation 13 as the Antichrist. And it's become such a, a, a popular interpretation that virtually now anybody in history that is famous for their sin, famous for their destruction, is considered a possible candidate as being the Antichrist. Think about Hitler himself. Hitler, for a long time, people considered him to be the Antichrist because of all of the things that he did, all of the evil things that he did. But here's the thing. Neither John nor Paul in 2 Thessalonians or Revelation 13 say anything about the Antichrist specifically being connected with these figures. And so what I want us to do is basically three things this morning. The first thing I want us to do is I want us to look at the identity. I want us to identify who the Antichrist is. And immediately some people are going to have their minds blown. For hundreds of years, people have been debating on who this person is. And in one sermon, you're going to tell us who he is? Well, I will tell you this, and I mean this with all my heart. I will never stand up here and give you an interpretation that is only mine that nobody has ever thought of before. I'm not going to stand up here and say, I'm going to tell you something about the Bible that nobody in 2,000 years has ever thought of. Because if I did that 10 times out of 10, I'm going to be wrong. 
So the things that I'm going to say today about the identity of the Antichrist are not new things. They are not things that I just came up with. They are things that people have noticed about the Antichrist and from John's writings for years. And so we want to identify specifically what those things are that John says about the identity of the Antichrist. The second thing that I want us to do is I want us to talk about characteristics of the Antichrist. Uh, John tells his readers not only who the Antichrist is, but what they need to look for and what they need to guard from regarding the Antichrist. And we do the same thing, don't we? It shouldn't surprise us to see John do this because if I'm telling somebody how to get to my house, I may tell them to drive down the road and, and, and you're going to go past such and such building, you're going to go past this road, and you're, it, it's kind of hard to see. My road's kind of hard to see. So if you pass a red brick house with a green roof, you've gone too far, you need to turn around and come back. By the way, those are not the directions to my house. Those are hypothetical, okay? But we give people signs of what to look for whenever they're trying to find something. Well, John's going to do the same thing with the Antichrist. But then in the third place, I want us to try to bring this whole thing back together. How can we harmonize all of these different interpretations to where everybody learns something that's valuable for their spiritual life? I want us to do that in the last place this morning. So let's look at the identity of the Antichrist. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> John is the only one, as I mentioned earlier, to say anything about the Antichrist specifically. And he says so in 1 John 2, 1 John 4, and 2 John in verse 7. The first thing that we learn about the Antichrist is that he is more than one person. If you look at 1 John 2 and verse 18, John says, Children... It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. And so we are not looking for one specific figure in history, whether it was in the first century or 2,000 years from now or later on or any, anywhere in between. John was talking about many antichrists, plurality of those kinds of people. So we move on, we learn that he's already wreaked havoc on the church. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, notice what it says. It's the last hour, and as you've heard that the antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. And so they've already come. They've already wreaked havoc. They've already exerted their influence. John talks about the concept of the last hour. He says, it is the last hour. What does that mean? Well, it may be natural for us as we read this to want to think, well, this is John's way of referring to the last days. The way that Paul talks about the last days. The way that Peter says in Acts chapter 2, in the last days these things are going to come. Talking about an interpretation of Joel's prophecy. And that may be what John's talking about. But in context, I don't think that's what this is. In this context, I think what John is doing is he's pointing to a specific time that these Christians would have automatically known about. It seems that when John was teaching these Christians, either when he was teaching them the gospel or when he was in the community talking to them about their relationship with Jesus already, that he was talking about a specific time when they would have to deal with these figures, these antichrists. And John is saying, look, you are looking for this in this hour 
well, this hour has come. They are here and they are exerting their influence now. And you need to be aware of this. You need to be ready for what's coming in the future. But they have already come. And so what are we talking about? We're talking immediately about a plurality of figures that in a specific community that are wreaking havoc on that specific community. And that community was probably Ephesus. Tradition says that later on in John's life, he had a ministry in Ephesus. And that may be the very community that John's talking about here. Notice some other things about the Antichrist. I don't like what I have on the screen, the way that it's worded, that he is an apostate Christian. Some of them were apostate Christians, but that doesn't mean all of them were. If you look at 1 John 2 and verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And so obviously some of them used to be part of the Christian community. But now they've developed these false beliefs and false views and they're going around teaching those things to other people. Not just holding these views, but teaching them to other people. But it doesn't mean that only apostate Christians are talked about here. Because in the very next uh, uh, sentence, it says, But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so some of them were, perhaps even most of them were, but not all of them were, according to John. And so some of them, at least, were apostate Christians. The Antichrist does not believe in the deity of Christ. These last two on the screen, I'll go up and pull up the other one. These are probably the two most, that they're most famous for. They don't believe in the deity of Christ, number one. John 2, verses 22 and 23 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so he doesn't believe in the deity of Christ. He doesn't believe in the humanity of Christ either. In 1 John 4 verses 2 and 3, John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. In 2 John verse 7, John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And so they don't believe in the deity of Christ or the Some of them are advancing the view that He's not God. Some of them are, perhaps. Others are advancing the view that He is not a human. And others are advancing the fact that He is, but not deity. What happens when you take one or both of these away from Jesus? He is not our sacrificial lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is not the Savior of the world. He does not remove our sins with His sacrifice. In order for Him to be everything that the Bible says He is, He has to be both fully God and fully man. 
it's no wonder why John calls him the Antichrist. Because he's stripping the Christ of everything that makes him the Christ. But this is the identity of the Antichrist. All of these things, and there are probably more things that we could point out in principle that revolve around this guy. But this is exactly who the, 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 um, the people that John is pointing his Christian community to to look out for and to be aware of. What about the characteristics of the Antichrist? You may have noticed some of these things as we were going through the identification. Well, first of all, he's a liar. In 1 John 2, verses 21 and 22, it says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. These Antichrists are liars. They claim to know something that nobody else knows. They claim to teach something that nobody else is teaching. But John says they're lying about the things that they claim to know. They're also very in close, uh, very similar to being a liar. They are deceivers. In 1 John 2 and verse 26... John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. In 2 John and verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so they claim to have knowledge that nobody else has, including John and the other apostles themselves. When we take these things and put them together with them being liars and deceivers, what are they claiming? These antichrists are claiming that the things that they have learned in the past about their salvation in Jesus are irrelevant to their living like Jesus or living for Jesus in the present and future. What they heard in the past they need to forget about. They need to start listening to these new teachings about Jesus put stock in that, live their life on that. How does Paul or excuse me, how does John counter that idea? Well, in 2 John 7 and verse 8, notice what he says. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now, who's the we here? John may be talking about himself, meaning himself and the apostle. The things that they have these Christian communities, hold on to that. Don't lose sight of that. Those were the things that we were preaching and teaching to you that gave you your salvation in Jesus. Don't lose what we, the apostles, have worked for. He may be talking about the Christians themselves. Everything that they have been doing to have salvation in Jesus, to maintain their salvation in Jesus, to live that spiritual life. Don't lose sight of that. Hold on to the things that you have worked for. He says basically the same thing in chapter 2. <clears throat> in verse 24, he says, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. These antichrists say, forget about the things you've learned in the past. Focus on the future. It's irrelevant for your Christian living now and in the future. But John says, don't listen to them. 
Focus on what you've heard in the past. Put your stock in what we taught you in the past. Obtain to what you heard from the past. And so they're lying and deceiving, claiming that they have this knowledge that John the Apostle, no other Apostle or anybody else for that matter, has any knowledge about. And they are authorized to teach those things, which points me to the final thing. The Antichrist is a false prophet. In verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's a false prophet. And so John gives a detailed description in these two chapters, these three chapters, 2 John and then 1 John verse, uh, chapters 2 and 4, he gives a detailed description on the identity of the Antichrist and characteristics of the Antichrist. And so we would kind of expect, if John is that detailed here, that if he, when he's writing to Christians or being persecuted heavily for their faith later on in the book of Revelation, if he is talking about these exact same figures or figure singular, that he would not just give the characteristics, but he would give the description and the name of exactly who they were looking for. So there wasn't any confusion. But John doesn't do that. Exactly. You may have noticed, John doesn't call the beast in Revelation 13, 11, the Antichrist, but you may have noticed, you may have noticed that both the Antichrist and the second beast of Revelation 13 are liars, deceivers, and false prophets. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 16 and 19, John will call this beast the false prophet. So what do we do with this? John doesn't call him the Antichrist, but he's the, he possesses the exact same characteristics as the Antichrist does. And so what do we do with it? Well, let's go to 1 John 4 and verse 1. And I want us to read something together. 1 John 4 verses 1, 2, and 3. And let's learn something about the Antichrist that John says that we have not called attention to yet. And I guess I'll go ahead and pull it up. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. What have we just learned in this passage about the Antichrist? That John is highlighting not a specific figure in history for people to look out for. While there may have been a plurality of figures teaching these things in this specific community in the first century, I get that. But what does John really want Christians to focus on? The teaching of the Antichrist. Not the figure himself, but his teaching. So how do we bring all this stuff together? Well, in Revelation chapter 13, the book of Revelation as a whole, we need to remember something about that book.
written in a historical context, meaning that it had to be significant for the first century Christians. When they were reading it, they had to get something out of it that was going to be relevant for them in their present daily life, something that they could carry with them so that they could maintain their hope in Jesus as they were being persecuted. But in order for it to be an inspired document for everybody of all time, it also has to have relevance to you and me today. And so how does Revelation do that? Revelation does that by presenting some thoughts that's relevant for every single person. It doesn't have to be about a specific figure in history for it to be relevant to us today. Because it's the spirit of the Antichrist that John wants us to guard ourselves from. Is the spirit of the Antichrist still in the world today? It is. And so what John is basically telling everybody, what God is telling everybody, whether 1st century or 21st century, he's saying don't listen to everything everybody teaches about Jesus and about your salvation. Hold fast to apostolic doctrine, to the inspired Word of God. And pay attention to it. And so John's main point is to highlight false teaching, not identify a specific figure in history to look out for. And we shouldn't be surprised to see this same thing taught in other places if that is the case. What did John say in 1 John 4 and verse 1? Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because there are many false prophets that have come in the world. Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22, John told the same thing to them. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There were some in the Thessalonican church that had the, the, the spiritual gift of prophecy the gift given them by the Holy Spirit, that miraculous gift. But the Thessalonians have been taught so many false things, perhaps about the second coming and other things uh, Paul has in mind here, that they were reluctant to listen to anything new anybody had to say. And Paul said, don't despise prophecy altogether. It's good. It's a gift given from God, given by the Spirit. But you do need to test those spirits to make sure that the things that they are saying are accurate and go along with everything else that God has been trying to teach. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see it in other, in other uh, circles in the church. We should not be surprised to see it in the history of God's people as a whole. In 1 Thessalonians, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 13, beginning in verse 1, Moses says this, of course God is speaking through Moses here, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams." For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's kind of an interesting passage to me. John, uh, God is going to allow people 
to have dreams or be able to interpret things that are going to happen. And God said, look, those things are going to happen as if they predicted the future exactly the way that they said they would. But I'm going to allow that to happen so that when they tell you to do something that you know is against my will, you'll be able to point them out and say, hey, that's a false prophet. Not because of the things that they did that were right, but because of the things that they did and said that were not according to Scripture, we may say. But everybody, all of God's people, in every facet of history, has been told to test the spirits, to pay attention to teachings, and not listen to everything. And so what conclusions can we draw from the lesson this morning? The first thing that we notice is that the Antichrist is a specific group of people in a specific community that is leading Christians astray. We learn that. We also learn that he, that group possesses certain characteristics that other ungodly figures possess. It's not just one person, or a few for that matter. It's many people that possess those same ungodly characteristics, and we still see them today. And then finally, we learn that his teaching, or their teaching, is John's main point of emphasis. Not the person themselves, but the teaching of the person. And so when we look at the book of Revelation, specifically chapter 13 and verse 11, we are not talking about, John is not talking about one single figure. It just doesn't fit with what he says about the Antichrist. John is talking about a specific form of teaching that's opposed to God's will. And specifically, because I take an idealist view of Revelation specifically, I believe that we're talking about the pagan religion of the Roman Empire in John 13 and verse 11. Because verse 1 is the Roman Empire itself, and so we've got the empire's religion right thereafter. That seems to make the most sense to me. It doesn't contradict anything else that we read in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. But the Antichrist certainly is something that we need to keep in mind because there are people in our world today that teach things that do not fall in line with the doctrine of Jesus and the salvation that He offers in the New Testament. It may be here that you're here this morning and this lesson really wasn't calling people to application necessarily, but it may be that there's something in your life that is not right, that you want to fix. You need to repent of some sins, ask for prayers of the congregation, and get your life back on track. We want to help you do that this morning if you need to. It may be that you're here this morning and you want to know more about the church. You want to know more about Jesus and the salvation that He offers and what you need to do to be His disciple. We can help you do that this morning too. If you feel the need for any reason to respond to the invitation, Please take that opportunity to do so now as we stand and sing.